Carol Anderson is the Charles Howard Candler Professor of African American Studies at Emory University. She's also the author of White Rage, The Unspoken Truth of Our Nation's Divide, a New York Times bestseller. On this episode of Created Equal, Season 3, we'll hear my conversation with author and professor Carol Anderson. It was founded on the principle We hold these truths to be self-evident That all men are created equal That all men are created equal All men are created equal So let's start by defining terms, so to speak White rage huh? uh, Let's talk about that term And what you mean by that term in the, in the title of your book and what struck me, um, and so let me give us some background on how I came to that, mm-hmm. was I'm watching the television when uh, Ferguson, Missouri is on fire um, after Michael Brown's murder. And the pundits were all talking about, look at all of that black rage. Mm-hmm. Look at black people burning up where they live. Who burns up where they live? Look at that black rage. And I... I lived in Missouri, and I'm shaking my head no, and I'm going, no, that's white rage. And I went, ooh, <laughs> because what we are so focused in on the flames that we miss the kindling. <laughs> we miss the policies that drive people out into the streets, the kinds of policies that systematically undermine African-American citizenship rights and undermine the advancement that African-Americans have had toward their citizenship rights. That's white rage. It's quiet. It's subtle. It's bureaucratic. It's legalistic. It's happening in our legislatures. It's happening in our governor's mansions. It's happening in our school board meetings, in our zoning commission meetings. But those policies systematically undermine black advancement. Mm. That's white rage. So, so it's a really interesting term to think about right now because of mm. some of the things that we see happening in American cities, including Detroit, uh, these massive, massive protests against systemic racism mm. and police brutality. And I, I, the way that I think that uh, the, the way that that term, I guess, pops into my mind in, in this context is the response by some who say, well, look at the violence that's happening that's harming black people, right? That there's been violence at some of these, some of these uh, protests that has, uh, that has resulted in injury or, or death to, to, to black people. And people say, well, why aren't you as upset about black-on-black crime and black-on-black violence as you are about these other things. And my answer, my answer to people who've asked that has been to say, where do you think black people have learned to devalue black life? In other words, where does this violence that you see, whether it's perpetrated by white police officers or by African-Americans themselves, where do you think the genesis of that comes from? It comes from the devaluation of black life that sits at the center of the founding of this country. And so whoever the perpetrator might be, whoever the purveyor of violence might be, a person is re- reflecting, as you say, white rage. That person is reflecting 
white supremacy. That person is reflecting the idea that black life does not have the same value as other life. And, and I have another response to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is, one, the, the protests are about state violence yes. against human beings. Not about individual violence, but state-sponsored violence. And, and the shift to, well, what about black-on-black crime is a way to, it's a shell game where they move the eye off of state-sponsored violence into individual violence. Mm. The second thing is that we don't talk about white-on-white crime. Right. But just as the majority of African Americans are killed by black people, the majority of whites are killed by white people. Mm-hmm. Both are above 80%, right? So 80% of the, of the homicides of whites happen by whites. Right. So what we're having there when we talk about black-on-black crime is not even a concern about that, right. but about a way to pathologize black people. There is something wrong with black people. That's the same thing that I saw with the, you know, who burns up where they live. Mm. The, the narrative of black pathology is essential in the way of it to craft policies, be it policies dealing with education, be it policies dealing with the criminal justice system or policies dealing with housing. The, the the narrative of black pathology undermine under undergirds all of that. Mm. Um and so that's what I think of when I when I hear and and the third piece also goes to an issue of anti blackness, which is the myth that black people don't grieve, don't care. Yes. Yes. When 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 their babies are shot. And and that goes back to the slave days when they would rip babies out of the arms of mothers on the auction block because, you know, they don't care about the kids anyway. Yeah, yeah. So all of these pathologies are then that, that, that emanate from that period. We see in the policies and in the narratives to, to, to justify the continuing work to undermine black citizenship. Mm. So even when we're talking about the right to vote, it becomes, well, you know, black people are criminals. And so they're going to steal elections. We have to protect our democracy from these black folks who will steal elections. The narrative of black pathology is powerful. Yeah. So, so in, your book, you write about various inflection points of white rage in American history, and one of them is the Great Migration, which is a time period mm. that Ellison speaks to some yeah. in Invisible Man. Can you talk more about the black, the backlash to black Americans' movement north to cities like Detroit in the 20th mm. century? Absolutely. And so 
you know, one of the things to understand migration is that you have push-pull factors. And the push factor was the, the lynching, the violence, the lack of education, the lack of civil rights um, that was happening in the South, a, a level of precarity and vulnerability that, that was pushing black people out. The pull factor was uh, the rise of industrial jobs in the North. And the kind of sense that um, one black man talked about, we're going to be able to breathe freer. Mm. But up north, one of the things, as you know, what happened in Detroit was that there was an area in Detroit called the Bottoms, Black Bottoms. Black Bottoms, yes. And, mm-hmm, and that, was, that was walled off, for, basically, for black folk. Well, with the Great Migration, about 10 times more more African-Americans were moving into that segregated neighborhood. And it was a neighborhood um, in the 1920s where about, what, 25% or so of the homes did not have indoor plumbing. And with the, the sense of supply and demand, you know, was walling black folks in, but they could, they had to pay more for their dilapidated housing mm-hmm. simply because there were more of them needing housing and could not move into those other areas in Detroit when they tried to move. And I, you know, and I tell the story of Dr. Ossie and Sweet, yes. um, whew, the, the, the violence, the, the neighborhood associations coming to protect their neighborhoods from an invasion, um, as they put it, um, to, to push black people back into black bottoms. Um, you saw, so you got massive residential segregation. You got uh, the, and you've got a, a system where, and that's why the Ossian Sweet story just so spoke to me. Because you saw not only the police um, backing the mobs, but you had the newspapers telling the story of these these poor victimized whites mm. who were having to deal with these black people. And you know, and and this is Doctor Ossian Sweet, who is moving into a white working class neighborhood. It it it. And you have the justice system trying this man and his family for murder when they were protecting their home from a mob that was screaming for bloody murder. Mm. So when you write about uh, the Great Migration, when you write about Detroit, uh, as you said, you you are inspired to address what's going on here by Black Bottom um, and by Ossie and Sweet. Uh, you also write about the Michigan Supreme Court case Parmalee versus Morris and the Klan presence in Detroit. I would love to hear you talk more about those things as well. Yes, and um, the, the Klan presence was one of the things. So you had the mayor, and he was a liberal mayor. He was... Um, elected by a coalition of African-Americans and whites 
who were doing their best to keep the Klan out of power. One of the things to remember about this moment is in 1915, um, D.W. Griffith's film, Birth of a Nation, mm-hmm. hit big. Um, and it was screened in the White House. And President Woodrow Wilson said this is history written with lightning. But what it did was it celebrated the KKK. And this is the this so this period of the Great Migration is also the period of the second rise of the Klan. And the Klan moved out of the South and into the North and had a major presence. And so you have this ongoing political battle to try to keep the Klan um, at bay because there was a fear of the, getting the Klan's hands on, on power and what it could do. Mm-hmm. And, uh, um, and I'm, you know, I've been dealing with so many court cases right now. <laughs> the uh, Parmalee decision Help me with that one. And I, as soon as you say it, I can get it. Uh, Parmalee versus Morris, uh, the Michigan yes. Supreme Court. Yes. And um, that was the one. I'm sorry. I'm, this is uh, restricting, uh, restrict, restrictive covenants. Restrictive uh, covenants. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, and, and it basically said that, you know, restrictive covenants are fine. And restrictive covenants are where when you are selling your home, there is, there's language in there that whites can only sell to whites Mm -hmm. and that this sale will be backed by the government. And, and so what this does, it's a way to keep our neighborhoods white. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, and, 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 and it's backed again by the force of law. And again, this is part of what, when I talk about white rage and the the kind of quiet, subtle, corrosive power of these legal decisions, that's what I mean. Yeah, yeah. That's what I mean. So you have somebody who is doing um, everything that they're supposed to do. And that's also one of the things I wanted to bring out in White Rage is that we often hear these tales of if only black folk would, Hmm. if only they would value education, if only they would work hard, Hmm. if only they weren't thugs, if only they weren't, wouldn't do drugs, if only they would keep their property up. You know, we all hear these things and I document how African-Americans in the vast majority do all of those things and they are punished for it. Mm. Mm. And that's what we also have to understand about white rage is that it punishes black excellence, black aspirations and black resilience. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll have more of my conversation with Carol Anderson. If uh, this is fundamentally about not being able to see black people as human, what is the solution to America's very difficult uh, uh, attentions and, and strife over racism and systemic inequality? Is there, is there a chance to change that notion? 
Yes, there is. And, it, and, and it's going to take some long, hard work. And this, I think this is part of what we're seeing in this moment that we're in right now. Um, whites are realizing that the, the lives that they're, they're leading have led to such incredible vulnerability. So when folks are saying, and let me back up and, and do this better. <laughs> As newsrooms across the country close their doors, independent and unbiased journalism is more crucial than ever. We rely on you just like you rely on us. This spring fundraiser, join us in protecting public media. Your support keeps us thriving. Invest in WDET's next chapter at WDET.org or tap donate in our mobile app. The vulnerability of the coronavirus and how badly that was mismanaged led to an economic crisis that has created hours-long lines to food banks and 40 million-plus unemployed vulnerability. Then seeing the state-sponsored violence raining down on black folk that then eddies out to whites, what we're seeing in Portland, what we saw in Buffalo, where the police just pushed down a white man, um, 75-year-old white man, and cracked his head on, 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 the, on the sidewalk. That sense that something is wrong, the narratives that have, passed, have been passed off as history, but are actually myths, are causing a, a reevaluation, a reconsideration. Uh, 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 when you look at the New York Times bestseller list, you're seeing a number of books on there dealing with issues of racism, anti-blackness, and it's how do we dismantle anti-blackness in the United States? Mm-hmm. And that's the work that is being done now. And it requires that whites have the conversation with whites. That, that particular point, I think, is really important. This idea that this problem is among and about white America, as opposed to a problem that exists only between white America and black America. I think that's one of the most difficult concepts for us to get our minds around that that this is about white Americans and the way in which they react to African Americans uh, and African American progress and the very idea of what it means to be black and it is their problem and issue to solve on their own as much as it is with black people right and you know, and so part of the reason why we're here, you know, and I lay this out in, in white rage, is that Donald Trump is the white rage response to Barack Obama. It is that he is, when, when Obama, you think about it, Trump made his political mark with birtherism. This attempt to delegitimize President Obama, mm-hmm. to, to other him, to foreign him. Um, and, and, and then we get Mexicans are rapists and criminals. When we have the, the election in 2016, 
with a lot of voter suppression going on, which is also a response to the election of Barack Obama, these voter suppression laws. Whites were the only racial or ethnic group, the racial group, that voted in the majority for Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. He had no skills. What he brought was white supremacy. And we are living through the result, the consequences of that decision. And I think that that is also what is causing this incredible and important reflective moment in America about how we got here. Because the only way you can understand how we got here, the only way you can make sense of following Barack Obama with Donald Trump is to understand the power of white rage and white supremacy. That the policies such as voter suppression laws that reduced black voter turnout in 2016 by 7% so that someone whose only qualification was white supremacy could be ensconced in the White House. White fragility is another phrase to distinguish that from the white rage you're talking about. Right. And so and that's Robin D'Angelo's book. It is. And yes. And so when she's dealing with white fragility, that she's laying that out, it is the way that whites um, feel threatened, um, feel um, that their world is being asked a, a question about racism or being interrogated on it or or having to confront it or or having to deal in a system that is more equal becomes this very almost um, psychologically disassociative moment for them. And they begin to, to, to break and, and to fight back in really harmful, destructive ways. So, but white fragility for me deals more with the kind of individual responses And what I'm dealing with in white rage are more of the systemic structural racism issues. So that's that's how I see the difference there. Mm -hmm. And and at the same time, those two different dynamics are so related and intertwined, it seems, Mm -hmm. that it's impossible really to, to consider one without thinking about how the other has an effect on it. Right. And so, you know, you think about the ways that politicians, for instance, uh, be it a George Wallace or Richard Nixon in the 68 campaign, you know, how do you deal with the advancement of the civil rights movement? Well, you talk about all of this, the crime ridden urban cities and how it is a threat to good, honest, hardworking Americans. And that language of good, honest, hardworking Americans is coded white. Mm. And so you have politicians preying on those fears and then creating policies and structures to allay those fears. Um, so it is the way that you see, for instance, um, after the Brown decision, 
um, that said separate but equal cannot stand. It's unconstitutional. And and so we are going to integrate these schools. Right. <laughs> and the response was you had this fear of, you know, Eisenhower's talking about, well, didn't know the real thing, President Eisenhower, the real thing is you just don't want our our, our sweet little girls having to sit next to some big Negro in class. Mm-hmm. That's almost a direct quote. Mm-hmm. Um, and that fear of what happens when African-Americans are in an educational setting. It's like, well, the quality of our schools will go down. That kind of automatic assumption of black pathology. And we've got to protect our schools the same way that Ossie and Sweet's neighbors thought that they had to protect their neighborhood from having a doctor move in. Mm. So those kinds of fears then help buoy um, the the policies that keep undermining not just African-Americans, but undermining America itself. I I think about the war on drugs. The war on drugs really was a a malevolent way way to play on the fear of crime Mm. and to target African-Americans because African-Americans actually do drugs the least of any racial or ethnic group in the United States, but we're locked up the most. Mm. But with those felony convictions, then you're, it systematically denies um, those who have been incarcerated, um, many of them, their voting rights in, in, in several states permanently. And it allows the kind of discrimination that the Civil Rights Act um, was supposed to be able to, to prevent when saying, you know, black people can't live here, black people can't go to school here. Having a felony conviction allows for discrimination. It becomes it becomes a proxy for the yes. racial classification that was used yes. before. Sure. Yes. 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 And so, um, uh, uh, author Jonathan Simon, a law professor out of Berkeley, he talks about governing through crime um, by the use of 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 conjuring up this image of cities gone wild and being tough on crime. Um, to prey on the fears of whites about security and their safety, mm-hmm. that it allows this this building up of this huge police and carceral state to provide safety. So the they they intertwine um, with me with white rage. I'm focusing in on those structural pieces. This is not just about. African Americans and the effect Mm-mm. of Mm-mm. racism on us. It is about the effect of racism on our entire country and our entire collective progress. Yes, um, and that's one of the things I, I lay out in that last chapter on the epilogue. Imagine, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, imagine what this nation would have been like if it had honored the the rights of the four million freed people after the Civil War. Um, And the fact that we didn't so skewed so much in terms of democracy, in terms of our policies, in terms of our international standing, um, in terms of the kinds of resources that we use. So for instance, the war on drugs 
the U.S. has spent about a trillion dollars, that's with a T, on the war on drugs to lock up most those who do drugs the least. Imagine if we had used that trillion to make sure the schools were accessible to everybody, really good schools. Imagine if we had used that trillion for access to health care for everyone. Imagine if we had used that trillion to clean up the environment. The damage of white supremacy is what we're living through right now. So that one of the studies is really clear is that one of the 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 resistance to um, access to health care for everyone has been racism, white supremacy, the fear that African-Americans were going to get access to something they shouldn't have. Mm. Jonathan Metzl, um, who is a professor out of Vanderbilt, wrote Dying for Whiteness, and he tracks this beautifully. And this fear that because blacks might get it, then we've got to stop it from happening for anybody. And so here we are in the middle of the coronavirus and tens of millions of people who have lost their jobs have now lost their access to health insurance in the middle of a pandemic. Mm -hmm. That's the power of white supremacy. That's the destructive power of white supremacy. We dismantle white supremacy and anti-blackness. We're going to have an incredible nation. On the next episode of Created Equal, I talk with Sarah Broom, author of The Yellow House, 2019 National Book Award winner and New York Times bestseller. In a place where we are constantly performing often dual selves, Um, and needing to be many, many things that you could sort of have a spot in the world where people know which name to call. That's a profound idea. Created Equal is a production of WDET, Detroit's NPR station. Our executive producer is Joan Cherry Isabella. Our producers are Jake Neer, Anna Marie Seisling, and Claire Brennan. Our sound engineers are Matt Trevethan, and Rowan Niamisto. Our composer and senior editor is Sam Bobian, and our social media and digital assets are done by Maida Stangi and Tony Brown. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson.